This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, ready? What you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she's on. I think about everyone you need. I hold in it, things are rooting brown now. I have a senior woman, you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. I just allow myself to be present. That's all I try to do when I perform or do anything. I go through all sorts of discussions with myself to try not to suppress my emotions because I need them. I need to be human. I need to be human sometimes on cue. But I also need to allow myself to feel so I don't build up the habit of suppressing it. Because we do that so often as Black people. We're overwhelmed with emotion. We're always trying to balance what's appropriate. All I know is that reading that, even though I wrote those words, if anything, we cut short how long it took me to gather myself to go on. Erica Alexander has been an extraordinary actress for many, many years, but now she's getting more into her activism. She's got a new audiobook called Finding Tamika from Audible, where she's talking about finding Tamika Houston, a 24-year-old woman who was murdered by someone she was seeing. Her body was not found for a year It's a tragic story. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about acting. We're going to talk about being in Get Out and so much more. This is an extraordinary conversation. It's Erica Alexander on Torre Show. I feel like I've known you forever. Like beyond like meeting you a couple times, I felt like I just knew you. You're like part of the family for oh, years. You. Even like when you joined the Cosby show, I was like, oh yeah, I know her. You know, like, mm. oh yeah, you know, you know, but but you know, the Cosby show was absolutely part of our extended family. Yes. So having Pam jump in was like, okay, now we really, really know her. That was a pretty amazing experience. I mean, that was the, you joined when it was already the number one television show in America. Yes, in the world. And um, I was at the tail end of it all. So they had already had their, some of their greatest experiences and we're 
moving on in their space. You know, there were so many things that were happening with different world already and all that. So I was there was nobody more surprised than me to show up as a new character. <laughs> How did you even get that gig? Well, I've been an actress or I'd been an actress, I think, uh, by then for at least seven years. I was discovered when I was 14. So by the time I got to the Cosby show, I'd already gone around the world with the Royal Shakespeare Theater doing a nine hour play called the Mahabharata with Peter Brook. I had already done um, a few plays off Broadway, one with Joseph Papp. It was his last play before he died. It was a Bill Gunn play. He died before um, we opened in the great Gloria Foster. It was mostly a four person play. And um, Camille Cosby was Gloria Foster's best friend. And she came to see Gloria in this play. And so the story goes that she kept bugging Mr. Cosby to not only come see the play for Gloria, but for this little girl. The girl she was talking about was me. I don't think he ever came. And I had auditioned several times for the Cosby show. And I had uh, been told that they would find a place for me because I was in just that perfect age that I could have been Theo's girlfriend, Lisa Bonet's, maybe a little too young for Lisa Bonet's friend because they were pushing a little older for her but also um, uh, Tempest's friend as well. And so I hadn't gotten anything yet, but suddenly one day I get a call, can you uh, be at his house in an hour? And I met the casting director there and he made up the character of Cousin Pam right in front of me. But I was told that he did it because Camille Cosby kept going on and on about this girl and off-Broadway show called The Forbidden City. That's That's an amazing story of how work begets work. And if you show up and do your thing, you know, uh, over here, then you never know what that could germinate into. You never know. And some people, I think that um, trying to chase that kind of kismet is where people go wrong. I always say it's in the small spaces. If you do your best job, even if you think nothing comes of it, people speak well of you or they say, wow, look what happened or the experience they might have had of you. And suddenly that director or that PA is suddenly in the position to say something nice about it to, uh, to you about a director who's thinking about casting you or that PA is the director. So sure. that's how quickly things move. And I try to make sure that people get the same experience of me, no matter where I am or what I'm doing, which is I'm trying to do my best. Yeah. I think we're both old enough to have seen the people who were low level when we were younger and low oh level goodness. move up you know, we all sort of move up together and it's like, well, now, you know, we were getting coffee for somebody. Now we're in a position to get each other a job. Um, you know, we can rise together, but you, so you have become much more activist E and you talk about this in finding Tamika that you're sort of, uh, developing and finding yourself more as an activist. And I listened to your, you did a podcast about reparations, right? That was very powerful and appreciate that journalist, journalistic, and just sort of like discussing the idea of reparations and slavery and the continued impact of slavery. Um, so this is this finding Tamika is not your first sort of. Uh, I'm just curious, where is this awakening from inside of you? Well, both of my parents um, were orphans. Um, my father was a preacher. My mother was a teacher. I'm from Arizona. I'm from the Southwest. And I spent the first 11 years of my life in a hotel called Starlight off of Route 66. Very humble beginnings because that's who they were. He was a Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal preacher, Baptist as well. He was he was an itinerant preacher. He would just go wherever anybody would would um, 
would ask him to be a guest preacher. And that's a very difficult way to go because it's like being a tipped wage worker. They pass the plate and that's what you get. But if you have six children, which is what he had, it's very difficult to have a life. And so um, he was discovered by the German Lutherans and um, they thought he was charismatic and talented. And it was the 70s and they were having this exchange of ideas and different cultures because the 60s were so traumatic for people and they wanted new voices. And they sent him to the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And that's how we got there. He was we were in Mount Airy. I started to go to schools in Mount Airy and um, in Girls High. Um, during 10th grade, actually, between ninth and 10th grade, my mother, who would each try, try to give each one of us one, well, one person each year um, an, ex, um, an experience in the summer, uh, sent me to a performing arts program at New Freedom Theater on Broad Street. And um, in the fifth week of this six week program, a movie came to town. It was a Mar- Merchant Ivory film called My Little Girl. And they said, you know, even if you don't get in a role, they were looking for brown and black girls to audition you should just do it for the experience i remember showing up at five o'clock in the morning because they had taught us already that you had to be more than early if you wanted to do well in life and i was the second person in line and it was a long day of going around and going around and then several more days into a couple of weeks of auditioning and screen tests you know about 13 different auditions and six of them being screen tests and when the smoke cleared they hired me for the lead and that again, kismet. And suddenly I had a SAG card and health insurance and opportunity. And one of the casting directors said to my mother, I think Erica can have a uh, career. My mother said, that's fine. No smut. And her school work comes first. And so yes, she mom. knows smut. And she took me to New York and my mother only met with my agents once and told them the same thing. And they said, yes, ma'am. And so that meant for them, no commercial work. It would have to be serious because I wouldn't be coming back and forth to Philly by myself as a 14 year old, only for serious things. And my mother thought I could do it. And she allowed me to do it. She had three jobs. She was trying to get her master's and my father was sick and soon to die. So I did that and I started on my way. That's how I got going in this space. So you asked me, where does it come from? My parents are in the service of other people, but we've also had to be chameleons and adapt. We've also had to help where we can. And I started looking for things that could help my mother, who was a non-traditional student who couldn't get Pell Grants like everybody else and who had to also be a nursemaid at nights. And I would only see her for an hour here or there. So that became the political work. And then I became Hillary Clinton's most traveled surrogate. She sent me all over the world. I started meeting John Lewis. That became John Good Trouble. By that time, my production company, they remembered I had one. Boom, boom, boom. It just kept going, kept going. And I kept pulling it in. But people kept asking me to show up and I would do anything to help people if I could, especially if they were doing um, work with women and children. That's an amazing story. So when you find the story of Tamika Houston, um, which is such a tragic story. Why did you say, I want to tell this story? Well, um, Tamika, because she was 24 when she passed away in the picture, it looks like a picture of the girls I went to school with in Girls High. Mm. And I know her. I know that press and set. I know you know, her ambitions and how she presented herself. I know the little catch in her voice and, you know, that kind of move. But I also thought the idea of somebody telling a story in an audio way 
and just hearing a very intimate conversation between the people who experienced it, as opposed to short docs or features that are inside of a larger sort of context, would be interesting. And what could we could do for that? So really, it just comes out of curiosity, Teray. I'm, I'm a curious person. They asked me to do it. I usually say yes to things, especially because I, I haven't gone to school for these things. I just get thrown in the deep end and I do the best I can. But I, I imagine really it was because Tamika looked like she could have been me, but also um, the way she died was so horrific. And I have a thing about, I, I think black women and girls, we don't know who they are. Forget if they go missing. We never really see them. We see a set of characteristics that we apply. And I think the only people who really know who they are are black men and uh, who've been raised by them and see outside of these things that they say strong or they're sassy or they're, you know, this or that. They're like, no, my mama was delicate. My mom had dreams. She, you know, she's as delicate as Scarlett Johansson. Why are we seeing girls and women before they go missing? And, and so anyway, this is my opportunity to tell the story. Yeah, there's several issues swirling within the Tamika story. Um, w- one of them is uh, domestic partner violence and mm-hmm. how women are very vulnerable and at risk to being murdered or, you know, very badly hurt by the person they love the most. And this was a newer relationship for, for her and her killer, but they were together and they get into a fight and he kills her. And it's just so, so tragic to think about the person you need to be the most nervous about is the person who you love and share a home with. Yeah. Except this person, she didn't either love or share a home with. That's what's also telling is that sometimes we take up with people that we have not really truly vetted for very specific reasons. The reason why this is interesting for me is that Tamika had a relationship with Terrence that was much more stable. She knew who he was and everybody knew that Terrence was, you know, real comic and kind of goofy and wacky, but he was also a real sweetheart and everybody speaks to that. But this one, was somebody that no none of her friends knew or her family. And I think that sometimes we temporarily might give ourselves over to relationships that we know are not good for us. But if our family hasn't met them or our best friends, that means she was hiding him. That means that there was a relationship outside of something that was normal. And I think that we do that often. And I say we for gain, material gain, or something you think that person's going to give you. So they might have had relationships, uh, you know, an, an intimate relationship, but they were not. Or perhaps they because were you know this guy, there's red flags here, but I like him. So I'm not, if, but if I start to introduce him to my world, my friends and my family would go like, excuse me, are you, are you ignoring all these red flags? Exactly. Exactly. And that's what happened. But I think that it was an opportunity that they were both inside. In fact, Tamika said she was a hustler. And we also, again, we support this idea of go get the bag, be a hustler, do what you need to do. To That's absurd when it comes to how vulnerable black women are out there. You get in the hustle on and you're looking a certain way and you think she's four foot 11 and you think you're going to out hustle these people. You might be smarter than them, but you can't overpower them. You can't overwhelm them. And often you are in a position to be assaulted and let alone murdered. She she had 
an iron thrown at her head and that killed her. Do you think that, and maybe this doesn't even matter, but do you think that he was trying to kill her or, you know, in a moment of arguing and anger, he threw something at her and like, oh my God, I didn't mean to hit her. And, but, but now she's dead. Um, Christopher Hampton is a very complicated individual and I can't speak to his mental wellness, but I can say that I was horrified by him in this way. At one point he would speak like he did it. Then another point he would say, I hope they found the person who, who did it. Then he would change the story. It's not an iron. I shot her, you know, all this other stuff. He came back and took off half her skull. What was right. that about? Right. Was he trying to hide what he really did? Would it look more like rage if they saw that? So I just think that um, I don't know what was going on with him. All I know is that um, she bled out in the closet. And if he did it as an accident, he had no presence of mind to not only uh, call the police or any sort of ambulance and explain it. But then afterwards, he went and got another young girl and had sex in the room that day. So. Mm. What can you what does that say mm. that she was with somebody who was evil in a way? I'm sorry. There's there's intentions that are evil. There's things that get out of hand. And then there's there's darkness, real darkness. And then so that part, but also what you talk about, what others have talked about around the Tamika situation is that media and law enforcement gives less energy and attention to the missing black woman versus mm -hmm. the missing white woman. And that affects how often they're found and how quickly they're found. Right. And that speaks to values. So everybody knows that we've been on a 20 year obsession with John Benet Ramsey. It's like, we can't get off that roller coaster. That little girl died horribly and tragically. She deserves for them to find her killer. But this is an obsession that they have with the so-called mythological presence of these blonde hair, blue eyes, icons of of white um, superiority, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. You don't look for people that you don't care about. So, of course, they're not going to look for her as beautiful as Tamika was. And you can see she was a doll baby. Um, she had Rebecca Howard, her aunt, who was a PR specialist. Desmond Howard is she's married to Desmond Howard, a Heisman Trophy winner, could get no national press. They only got support from the black press and Rebecca always thanks them and says they were the first people to care and spread this, the word as best they could. But when a person's missing, you need that national coverage to go as quickly as possible so you can get tips. And in fact, by the time they did get a tip from their first national co big coverage, the, the girl that called in said, I saw the reenactment and that's not what, how the room looked. She, they would have never found her if she had not been looking at the big three TV. One of the things that alerted the family was the dog. Her beloved dog had been left alone, had just given yeah. birth. And that told the family, no, 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 no. She wouldn't have left without her dog. That dog was like a child to her. And the dog um, becomes a huge issue for you. And there's this incredibly dramatic moment where you are kind of crying over the dog 
being abandoned, which of course is a symbol for Tamika, something clearly terrible. You're like, you know, this is clearly beyond intuition. We now know something terrible and you're, you're, you're crying. It's very moving. I'm wondering, did that audio moment happen in the moment? And so, so you were truly like, I am feeling this right now and recording this, or did you summon that, you know, almost as an actor later to say like, this is how I felt in that moment, but I'm, I'm recreating it. No, that's how I felt in the moment. In fact, just you talking about this almost too much to think about because anyway, it's just awful. And I think that, uh, <clears throat> I just allow myself to be present. That's all I try to do when I perform or do anything. I go through all sorts of <clears throat> discussions with myself to try not to suppress my emotions because I need them. I need to be human. Um, I need to be human sometimes on cue. But I also need to allow myself to feel so I don't build up the habit of suppressing it because we do that so often as black people we're overwhelmed with emotion and we're always trying to balance what's appropriate. All I know is that reading that, even though I wrote those words, if anything, we cut short how long it took me to gather myself to go on. I knew that James T. Green, who was our executive producer for Molten Art was recording. I was recording on my end with my mic and that I should finish because I'm also trained that the show must go on, that I'm not going to apologize and say, let me do that again. And in fact, we did it a few times, but of course, each time I teared up differently, but I did. And I tried to get myself together. And, you know, later on, he said, of course, I left it in Erica because it was authentic. And that's what this should be. And I think it was his first hint that he was dealing with somebody who I was not, I was going to be transparent, but I was going to be inside of this space while I was in that space that I would give myself over to it. And I would be with her. I would be with the audience. I would try to feel for them because that's my job. I mean, you know, it's a very powerful and affecting and moving moment in the story that you're telling and where activism of that sort moves from the heady, we're telling you the way that things should be, we're telling you about injustice, to emotional response to injustice. Um, it's, it's, it's very powerful and arresting. And it's, that sticks with you, you. more than the, the, the statistics about, you know, or the, the pointing out the patterns of racism. Yeah. Black people, I don't know how we're alive. I don't know why we're not crazy in the streets, pulling our hair out. You go on any Instagram and you're greeted with tragedy, rage, violence, injustice. And you're just supposed to go back to your life and eat your food and act like it's nothing happening. And we've done it so much that we've taught ourselves how to do it. We can't. We've got to allow ourselves to lay it down and experience it in the moment. 
unapologetically. My people, um, I'm just uh, in awe of us, our ability to transition. Amazing. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot the last few years because now, you know, everything is videoed and sent around and... to see all of them and to have, I mean, I think you and I, most black people have probably 25 or 30 videos in our mind. Oh my God. That we could call up on a, on a moment. I could just say a name. You'd be like, yep, I could see him getting killed. Yep. I could see her getting killed. Um, And it's, it's, I'm like, how does, how does it affect a community when we're all walking around with all these videos of black death in our minds, in our short-term memory. Brutal. Brutal. I don't know. You, it's a really great thing you're thinking about. And we, I don't know. I don't know. You just said it when you said 20 or 30. If you mentioned when I go, oh, yeah, there it is. It would pop up. Oh, is it? Oh, sure. That. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I remember that. I remember even, oh, I said something send. This is outrageous. It makes no freaking sense. We're assaulted. Listen, when Martin Luther King died back in the day, I'm sure it played on a loop. You know, the idea of them talking about it all the time. But they didn't see him get shot. Right. We see the people getting shot, knees on necks. We see it all. We see people. There was a man that pulled a little girl out of the car or a young girl. She was hogtied. And carried her into the station like that. To me, it haunts me. Why? It haunts me, Philando Castile, girlfriend begging, please don't shoot my boyfriend. And the little girl in the back and her saying, mommy, it's okay. Why are we going to check back with her to see who she is? That's the whole point, too. Not to just see them when they're gone. Find out how they're doing. See them. What is their life like now? What are their life? It's unreal. These going on and on with black men and they're just supposed to go on and just act what it's absurd we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to doordash if you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick let doordash bring dinner tonight my family uses doordash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. 
Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I got some level of peace in talking to some of my friends in Black Lives Matter, real leaders in that group, who said, I don't watch everyone. Like, I am now at the point where I turn away from watching, because I don't need to watch everyone. And they're very big on self-care. And that part, when we talk, our media talks about them, they don't talk about that part of Black Lives Matter. That is very, and they're like, this is part of self-care that I need to be able to continue to fight. And watching every single one um, is, it it drags you down. And as I talk about this, I don't want to point a finger at this individual, but like I think about people like Z-Way and others saying, stop reposting Sean King, stop following Sean King. And I'm not saying this for you and I to mm-hmm. gang up on no, Sean King. He's been on this show and I know him personally, but mm-hmm. he posts tons of these videos and it becomes difficult to have, you know, he's like a friend who keeps bringing up the thing. And I'm like, you, we don't have to talk about every single one because it is emotionally difficult to talk about every single one. And um, when, 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 when my folks in Black Lives Matter were like, you don't need to dive deep into every one. I was like, well, that is a, that helps. It's emotional abuse, except then the question is, who gets to choose who we pay attention to. They all deserve, like they've got to live somewhere. We've got to catalog and archive this. We can't let it, the, the, the mainstream media is not gonna ignore it. So as black people, if we have this video, aren't we responsible and held accountable not to choose which one? I understand not looking at each one of them, but someone must lift it up so we can see it. And if it's, too much. That's the only way they believe it's happening. Or listen, all I know is 
who gets to choose which one gets highlighted? I don't know. I don't know. And not only the death by cop videos, but all the Karen Ken videos of white people saying mean, rude, obnoxious, racist things. I'm like, I'm chasing us in stores. Oh my God. I, I can't, I can't, I can't with all of them. I can't. I like, I, I mean, you could get inundated with a hundred of those a day. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I feel like I'm being screamed at. I'm being followed. Oh, my, it's too much. And you are though, you know, you represent the very best of what the descendants of slaves are. Educated, smart, handsome, beautiful, access, all of that. And in one moment, they can take you down like they did the vet who cried because the officer made him feel like nothing. And if we all saw that happen to you, we would be outraged and say, how dare you? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know how he's loved? Do you know what he's done for the world, our community, but also for America? But no, that ignorant person wouldn't do that. And yet, it equates you, unfortunately, with somebody who does not have the education, the access or any of that. That's why I said, who gets to say who? We have to lift them all up because for those reasons, that person should have had every opportunity that you had. You know, I do, I do love and savor the videos where a black person gives it back. There was one oh, yeah. the other day where some white guy called oh, yeah. uh, a black guy the N-word and oh, he yeah. opened, and maybe you saw this one. He open hand slapped him like seven times. times. 20. Right. And like knocked him down. And I was like, yes, brother. Yes, yes. Let him know. Let him know. He, he did. And you know what's funny? I know that's because that built up from probably that man, that man seeing all these things and saying, not today. Not and today. Then a per- he didn't have, he couldn't. And I keep saying, please don't let me be tested. I'm not John Lewis. I, I haven't trained for nonviolence. Uh, and I think we all should have some training <laughs> just because we could ruin our own lives by sure. losing our temper. I, I, I mean, yes, I saw one where a brother was in some sort of convenience store and the white man said it and he had a little Southern accent to it, which makes it even that much worse. Yes. Trigger. And it re- it triggered me. And I know it triggered him because he just went, pow, and just like, just knocked him out. I mean, it was like Roy Jones, like quick, like, bow, like the fist was to the chin, like faster than you could like, and he's down out for the count. And everyone in the store was like, yep, that was about right. But then there's a brother, I think it was in Tampa, and I think he was working at Popeye's, if I remember correctly. Is it Popeye's, KFC, something like that. And an mm-hmm. uh, wow. older white man said it at the drive-thru. And they were like, oh, really? Why don't you come inside? And he came inside and said it. And young brother, 24, 25, um, wow. was, he was the manager. But you know, he's making not much more than minimum wage, right? At this sort of fast sure food restaurant. Sure and you know, he said, say it again. And this 70 something white man said it again and he knocked him out. But the white man fell in a way where he hit his head and then died like six days later. And then the brother went to prison. 
And there you are. You know, I mean, like a tragedy, a a tragedy, a tragedy, you know, and if this country had justice, it would be like, well, you know, you, you, you can't go around saying that to people and not expect what might happen next. But right. of course, we don't we don't operate like that. No. And they don't understand that they're dealing with people who've been suppressing those emotions for hundreds of years. And the generational trauma is real. And yet that young man thought, I'm this is not I'm going to show him. And that's what the mothers and the fathers had warned him about. It's awful to me. That's the worst tragedy that happened that uh, anyway. I want, I want, I I want to talk about your acting career a little bit because you've been in so many iconic things. You continue to be in iconic things. But before we leave this part of the conversation, I ask everybody who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you and where does it show up in your work? Um, And, and I'm curious where you would take that. Well, let me put you like this. Um, every generation, um, everyone has to fight the fight that's in front of them. And the entertainment industry specifically has paid lip service to diversity and hiring and development for all these years. But for someone to actually address it in Hollywood, they have to reckon with the ongoing systemic biases and racism that exists. So there's a few executives out there who might have anticipated the audience change that's going right now all of the rebrowning of america that means latin that means you know uh, brown skin people black people def- most definitely who have been there and been the biggest culture makers in world history but in the global collaborations that are happening happening so right now i'm thrilled that we have like multiracial non-homogenous grassroots movements and that they're demanding change and it matches some of the things that's happening in hollywood but they were previously radioactive projects Mm. that could not get any any play. And now, because of Black Panther and Shonda Rhimes and people like Yvette Lee Bowser and um, um, Blackish and all the great creators, we're having it because of you, because you exist, because you continue to um, find ways to uh, be excellent. That's happening. I'm glad to see it. I've been in it nearly almost 40 years. It's been 38 years. And um, I can remember when it wasn't that there. So I just try not to be exhausted and try to say, hey, there's new energy. Erica, don't be exhausted now. Be tired later. Like you can get some things done. If it wasn't for Charlemagne the God or even Kevin Hart having the platform they had and then reaching and saying, we need to lift more black women and funding this and making sure it happened. They had to deal with Audible um, for a set of original series. And they started a company, a joint company, SBH. There's the ones who said yes. And there we were at Audible. Um, me and Color Farm, that's me and Ben Arna, and that's my partner, Rebecca Howard, that's Tamika Zant. She's a part of this. And David Person, who's a journalist who originally bought this idea to me because I'd done an event for him and with him for a Black woman in Alabama. Uh, David Person uh, should be congratulated because he, he wrote about Tamika and uh, kept her in his heart. So it's all of us working together to go forward. But for no reason do I not look at all the other things that are systemically wrong. They give us budgets like this Mm. to do everything with and try to do it cheaply. And I said, that's unacceptable. 
We need those bigger budgets. We need budgets that can show we can. We're tired of doing things with no money. We're tired of doing things project by project. Go fund those um, companies and not just Lena's and Isa's and Ava's, which are great, but all the other people who are out there. There's media companies trying to happen, new newspaper, new type of formats, um, new um, coverage that we, we're not. It, listen, all I know is as long as they as we're not getting funded and we're not pooling our resources together, which I think we should be doing more joint collaborations like this one. I believe that I only be successful with collaborations and I don't want to be successful on my own. Um, we can get some things done, but we also have to pull our money so we can also give it. We need, we need the skill sets and skill sets cost money. That's all. Are, I we are, we are <laughs> black projects are still getting smaller Budgets. Oh yeah. Not just smaller budgets, nothing. They'll do a movie for $1.5 to $3 million. And um, they'll be thinking they're doing something and you go see something else and they'll have white face and they'll have five, 10. What's the difference? Blackness. And they're, we're the minority majority. So they keep saying, you know, there's more, children of color in America since 2018 than right. any other demographic, but right. you're not servicing that. Why are you giving the least amount of money? That's again, it's value. They didn't want to look for Tamika because she wasn't valuable. They say, Oh, we want to do more things with you do, but you don't want to fund it. You don't want to give it the money it needs to bring in the best players to do it. So we can kill the game. You still want us to work for nothing. It's outrageous. Um, Let's touch on reparations for a second because you did a really powerful show podcast about reparations. And I'm curious where you would like to see it. We, we will, I, I've talked to folks who said the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap will never be solved, but for uh, uh, an invasive act, i.e. like reparations. Uh, and it could, is it, is, should it be the government giving cash payments to descendants of slaves? Should it be the elimination of, of income taxes for a period of time? Mm. I know there, I spoke to at least one prominent billionaire who said he was considering giving a significant cash payment to uh, black people. That didn't happen. Maybe it'll happen in the future. I think about if several black billionaires or, or multi multi-millionaires pooled together a sort of $500, $600 million fund that was meant to allow black people to purchase homes at, at and get mortgages at discounted rates so that we're seeding black wealth for, the, for future generations because all these black people are able to purchase homes. That could have a massive impact on the black future. What, what do you think? I think all of the above, please and thank you. Yes, <laughs> please and thank you. Well, it's Christmas. I, we can't get everything. You know what? <laughs> Even I, if it's but Christmas. You, but you know what? I think we can. Not only they they couldn't they couldn't give us enough for what they've done to yes. uh, decimate the African continent. Let's just get and the resources they stole. Not even just the, the most valuable resources of people, but also that they continue to steal and colonize uh, to this day. All I know is that they're all right. Tom Steyer, who's a billionaire, 
and who is creating banks to try to address this. Um, uh, we spoke to in the, the podcast, which, by the way, again, funded and produced by Charlemagne the God on the Black Effect, who's, who I went to go talk about my reparations documentary that we're doing. And we've been following Robin Ruth Simmons and um, H.R. 40 since 2019 with Sheila Jackson Lee. And um, um, one of the reasons why he wanted to fund it, he was, he was like, uh, you know, Queen, you want to do a, a reparations podcast? I'm like, sure. What's a, what's a podcast? <laughs> Shoot. What kind of podcast? So I do what I can. But that's because we I thought we get an opportunity to talk to all these people. And I'd learn while I was doing something that mattered what the different points of view were. We've had, we spoke to um, Ados Yvette Carnell, who says it should be cash payments and all of these things. It's systemic problems. So it should. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Torrey. Thrivemarket.com slash Torrey. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Be seen as something that comes from different ways and different um, remedies, um, appropriate remedies, as they said when they were talking about Special Field Order 15. So I'm, I'm thinking we can get it all. In fact, we're going to have to do it that way because right now it's being done locally and they're doing it in various different ways. And as you know, in Evanston, Illinois, they gave them a house um, grant like 25,000 in there, you know, that was something, you know, somebody else might find a different way. Let's talk about some of the iconic things that you've been a part of, because you've been really fortunate. Your, your, your filmography um, is incredible. Um, I want to go backwards. Um, the, the Wu-Tang show that you are a part of, I love this show the <laughs> the first season which was more of the prehistory i was learning a lot because of course i didn't know the prehistory of wu-tang um, <laughs> you know it during the career stuff i was like okay i know this story but i love the way they're showing it and going into family connections and your 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 familiar and just visually my god this the the episode where rizza was making a record and they were showing how he was using the band, the sampling, and like just erase 
the keyboard and the keyboardist moves away and erase the guitar. Mm. The guitarist goes and the lead, erase the lead mm. singer. And they were just have the drummer standing on the, now go faster, now go slower. And I'm like, that was one of the most, I, to all my producer friends, that was one of the most brilliant visual oh, representations of Sonic that I'd ever seen. Um, but your, your, your character is really important um, as one of the mothers of uh, the Wu. Yes, uh, she's the mother of RZA. And um, since it's told um, mainly from RZA's point of view as a producer, he puts her in a setting like a diamond. He adored his mother. She had 11 children, not four. There's only four represented in there. And apparently I had to be vetted by all 11 children to play that role. How was that? You know what? I didn't know that was happening. He told me once I got the role, he said, Erica, um, all of my brothers and sisters had to, you know, how he talks, you know, uh, he, they had to, um, they had to say, okay, to you. I said, well, I'm honored because if I pass 11, <laughs> then, then that what well, I don't know what they saw in me. I think they saw the strength. Certainly that I think that they always talked about how light and fun she was. So I was glad to see that, but also that, um, they thought that she was a lady that she loved to, to go out and do things. So they, you know, that she wasn't ever overly pressed by uh, her mother, you know, although she raised very strong uh, self um, independent children. So I was very happy to see that. And so thank you for that. And more importantly, um, that scene you're talking about is proof of how, again, black people can do more with less. We shouldn't have to. But they couldn't afford bands and all that. So they used what they had, which was a keyboard and a few you know, drum machines that they can get cheaply. But we changed the world with that. You're, it's like Louis Armstrong got a trumpet and that's all he needed to he create needed. jazz. That's all he needed. Your, your character is looking for love and hoping to find it and, you know, make some difficult choices. Or maybe let's say she ignores some red flags and gets hurt. But keeps on trucking. It's that's a whole interesting because she she becomes a real character in terms of she has her own thing. She's not just like I'm taking care of of Robert the Rizza, but like I have my own life that I'm trying to 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 tend to. Absolutely, and um, again, they said that that was a lot about her that she was into sacrifice and all that. But she was she very much wanted to live her own life. Unfortunately, going back to domestic violence, she her demise is linked to, they think, an aneurysm because she was beaten so often um, by um, a partner that um, she had a bleeding in her brain and non-detected and and died at 52 or so. I'm 52. Uh, yeah. So I, I, there's sadness that this woman, as beautiful she was, had a very hard, violent domestic life. You have a great a small but great role in one of the great films of this era, <laughs> Get Out. Tell me about about that and about working with one of the greatest directors working today, Jordan Peele. Okay, so I'm going to tell the story and I hope people see it for what it is. I didn't know. I knew Key and Peele and right. I admire and love their comedy. But when I was doing that role, I didn't know Jordan was the director. I had no idea that it was a horror film. I thought it was a comedy because it wasn't called Get Out. It was called something. And it was the name of the dog that, you know, that uh, Little Rail has on his on his um, lap. And I, because I was 
siloed off in a comic comedic scene, you know, that's really what I paid attention to. I usually, you know, if I'm not in a scene if, and it's not relevant to me, I usually don't want it. I don't need to know about it. So I kind of popped in to Alabama after I was doing Queen Sugar, flew in that morning, got in and the makeup and hair said, have you met Jordan yet? I said, oh, I haven't. Oh, he's a right. He's great. I said, let me look him up because I thought he was a college student. I thought I was doing a college. I kid, I kid you not. He had written me and said, we hope the, the schedule works out, that he really thought I could bring something interesting or distinct. And I said, oh, don't worry, Jordan, we'll work it out. So I just kept on calling him Jordan. I looked up, I said, oh, God, that's Jordan Peele from Key and Peele. Oh, my goodness. I said, girl, get yourself together. So um, he came in and gave me a hug and said, Erica, I really don't care. You wear what you want. I'm into costumes. You know, find out what you want. I said, we're just going to do this and have some fun. I said, sure. The makeup people come shaking out this wig. And they were white makeup and hair. So I was like, oh, Lord, here we go. Right. And I had, had this very, you know, uh, major braids coming in from Queen Sugar. And they put it on my head. And I look and I said, there she is. I said, I'm ready to go. And went in and we did it. We worked all afternoon. I think it was, you know, four hours or so. doing. It was a much bigger scene. And then I said goodbye, got on a plane and flew out to Harlem to campaign for Hillary Clinton in Harlem and never thought about anything until my friend said, Eric, I saw a trailer. You said you were in something. Is it called Get Out? I said, I don't know. Maybe the name changed. He said, well, it's not a comedy. It's a horror movie. I said, what? <laughs> and that is the first time I recognized what it is. And then, you know, how things happen. You start to hear. It starts to be amplified. And then I went to the screening and said, my God, this is new and different. But I was surprised, just as surprised as anyone else. And so I'm very happy for Jordan, very happy for his his success afterwards, but because you work so often as a guest player and you just keep it moving, you don't often know what you're in. You just do the best you can and keep it moving. That's really interesting that you really didn't know the whole of the project. You knew this is the, this is the nail that I'm supposed to hammer in. Okay, great. Are we making a house? Are we making a project? Are we making a mansion? I, I don't know. I did my little part and I moved on. Right. Go with God. Right. Go with God. And it is, you know, a, it is a comedic scene. It is a, it is a comedic scene. There's no reason why it should be at some point. I take him seriously because I think that he said the, uh, the sun is missing. So I sit up and I, you know, I become a chief of police. But other than that, when he starts talking about mind control. Right. <laughs> and you are us, right? If you, if the characters in the movie are trying to explain what happened. We are like, you've got to be kidding. You're like, Joe, you got to hear this crazy. Li- don't tell him again. Tell him again. Tell him don't again. Don't hear this. Tell yeah, him exactly. again. <laughs> exactly. do what? Oh, you're crazy now. Exactly. Exactly. I'm that person. Look, all I know is I had a great time doing it. Um, love to do it again. Um, he was saying that every time I came on screen at the screenings, people would clap because they were like, there's me. Once they figured it out. And he said, we got to do a movie just for Lieutenant, uh, um, with Detective Latoya. I said, let's do it, Jordan. Wow. I said, that would be great. Wow. Well, do, uh, her in the world of Jordan Peele would be really interesting. Because when you pair <laughs> Get Out with us and what we know about Nope, it's creating oh. this world that oh, yeah. is extraordinary and unique and powerful oh, yeah. and frightening. And yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, he's on fire right now. And he said, actually, he told me, he said, Eric, he said, Erica, I don't care if I ever do comedy again. He says, he says, I can't look at a comedy without wanting to throw up that he said he just had too much. <laughs> and I was like, wow, really? He just he just was done. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for him that he's he's actually loving his life because he said he was good at comedy and great at it. Yeah. But this is where this is his. This is a sweet spot. No, this is not what we saw coming. So uh, let's talk about Cosby's show for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Kamau has his documentary mm-hmm. on Showtime, really yeah. laying out a sort of case around Bill Cosby. Um, and, you know, and a lot about it's like, uh, there's a lot of weirdo stuff going on at the Cosby show. Was there any weird stuff that made you go, oh, something doesn't smell right here? No, um, I'm glad that not in that way. Absolutely not. Um, almost can't imagine knowing what we know now that that person ever existed. You have to understand, I, come, I told you my father was a preacher and you see a lot of people who in the church arena can be hypocrites. They can be mean, they can be overbearing and then go out and pray for people and be loved. I'd seen that kind of switch all the time. And certainly he had his faults there that he would be um, I think um, could be very mean and surprisingly so because he was always, you know, adjacent to children and, you know, the patience that he had. And, and, but I'd been in showbiz for a while and seen that kind of like whiplash. I never thought that that same person was assaulting women in that way. Certainly not people that I know and respected like Beverly um, Johnson, people like that. And, and um it's hard to put it together. And it's also hard because I always think, well, the women need to speak for themselves. Uh, they wanted us, or they, I know they called to ask if I wanted to participate. And I said, no, thank you. Um, Cause I didn't think I had anything to give over to the specific, the specific topic. But also I thought, however, we don't interrupt this conversation happening between the women it happened, it happened to, and the people who are doing something about it and go ahead. Cause otherwise I'm just talking. Yeah. Um, you know, my kids and I, my wife went to Philadelphia and knocked on doors for Hillary Clinton. And we were really proud to do that, especially, you know, for my wife and my daughter, it was very meaningful, um, to, to be helping Hillary get up over the hump we thought and yes. knocking on doors is hard a lot of people no. are like i don't want to hear from you i don't want to hear <laughs> about it leave me yeah, alone oh yes <laughs> yeah. very volatile uh, even if they're like yo i'm gonna vote leave me alone like okay exactly do you exactly. know where you're gonna vote i said leave me alone. like <laughs> be, be, but, can we count on you <laughs> you know but um when she had when she lost it was extraordinarily difficult for me to say, oh my God, what am I going to tell my daughter? How do I explain this to my daughter? Um, what, emotionally for you, how did you process that, that it, it didn't work out for us and it was so devastating emotionally? It was devastating emotionally and I'm still processing it, believe it or not. I know that sounds crazy, but it's the truth. I had been with her since 2007. I had been with her right next to Maya Angelou and Cicely Tyson and Sheila Jackson Lee and all these people who I got not only to knew I admired, but to know, but we were um, 
I was, I think, radicalized around the idea of her presidency because I went to an all girls high school and I heard and I knew I'd seen Shirley Chisholm say, what's harder, being black or woman? She said being a woman. And I felt that in my bones. I was like, be a woman now. And it had nothing to do with and when Obama showed up and he was so beautiful and, you know, new and, I, and everyone knew that his campaign would be hard. It was terrifically hard after that to then be a black face that was talking and speaking for this woman. But I'm I'm nothing if not loyal. And I believed what I believed before I knew that he was there and um, and I was going to see it through. I got to find out the hatred that people had for women, not just her, was unreal um, yeah. Yeah. and traumatizing. Yeah. And um, especially if you were a smart woman. And there was no accounting for it. It was just un, it was ludicrous. And then 2016 shows up, the abuse she took. But not only that, there was sort of a new coming to Jesus thing for the world where maybe she's not evil and eating people in pizza shops and you know oh whatever God. they thought she was doing. And I said, well, maybe she's actually a public servant who makes mistakes. And maybe she's actually done some amazing things in life. You can stand next to that. But then to lose to a lunatic, lunatic who is as evil as they come yeah. and as desperately dumb as yeah. could be. Yeah. Then you start to think, why do they hate her so much? Or why do they hate us so much? I'm to women. I'm like, and there was no words. And then it was everything that she said it would be and worse. So to see the damage he did to America, to see how, I thought we should have defended her long before she needed defense. Again, goes back to fighting Tamika. We need to see people. We need to not make them wicked witches of the West. We need to not hold them to standards that don't exist for us. And we need to find ways to have conversations about our public servants, people who stand on the front lines without tearing them down all the time, allowing them to be human and grow and also make mistakes, but also reform, come back, transform, just like we do. And uh, if we did, I think we'd, get a better crop of people running because most people don't want to run. One last thing for you. I really appreciate your time. Um, Thank you. What is your superpower? What is the thing you do better than other folks that's led you to the success that you've had? Well, I'd say for my mom and dad, um, I adapt. I'm grateful. I'm aware. I don't take for granted. Say this moment. The time with you. I'll remember it and I'll try to transfer it over to somebody. I mentor people. I'm mentored by people. Reverend Barber gives his time to me to mentor me. He knows I'm not particularly religious. We're just friends. And I see it all the time with people's kindness and compassion to me. Just say, oh, Eric, it's okay. People come to me in the street, give me love. Hey, sis, we love you. Way before I got an award, I had people at the bank make it a big deal out of me when I showed up. People when I was flying um, coach um, and they had seen maybe a show of mine when I was younger and people didn't think that a 15 year old should be on a on a flight. They would sometimes say, come on up. We know who you are. And they would bring me to first class and then they just wink at me and just serve me everything. You know, this happened to me so often. Um, I just want to say thank you to all those people. And I think that that distinguishes me because I know I, I, I am that little girl who dumpster dived and collected cans and knocked on people's doors asking for jobs to sweep their porch, take out their trash, and uh, whose brothers would take shovels and, 
you know, a $20 bill was mythological to us. It didn't exist. I'm that girl. Just a little dressed up now. Thank you so much to Erica for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Toray Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Toray Show. Toray Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Mm-hmm.